Hi, my name's Madalena Kay, and I'm the host of the podcast AI and You, produced by Europod in partnership with Podium Podcast, Agence France Press, and Cora Media. In AI and You, we deal with the history of AI and how it is having an impact on our lives. From social relationships to employment, from climate change to wars and security. Is AI changing our world for the better or the worse? Come and check it out for yourself. Subscribe to AI and You wherever you listen to podcasts. Let us be honest, as our other many refugee friends say, that we cannot be refugee and foreigner forever. We are part of the society, we feel at home. What is integration? What does it mean to you or me or the people who are expected to integrate into our societies? Hi, dear listeners, I'm Gail Rago, and this is the first episode of the third season of Europe Talks Back, a podcast uncovering the most urgent matters affecting all of us through the lens of social justice. Having been born and raised as a migrant for my whole life, and since morphing from a migrant to citizen in the EU, I want to unfurl how this term is used as a weapon against us migrants. Why is integration good? Who decides what it looks like? And is it something that migrants themselves think is even possible to achieve? We will talk about this with Razan Ismail, Chief Operating Officer of New Women Connectors and founder of the Association Kudwa. But before that, let's hear from Saeed Hasnan, founder and president of UNIR, the first refugee-led network in Italy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm uh, Sayed Asnain. I'm originally from Afghanistan, and uh, I'm president of UNIR, Italian National Union of Refugees and Exiles. It's a fast refugee network in Italy, which mainly works on meaningful participation of refugees in public debates and policy discussions, and also on narrative change around migration. I am 35 years old. I come from south of Afghanistan. The region is called Helmand. I was sent outside of Afghanistan by my mother just to not fight for Taliban's in a civil war in 90s. I have been for four years in Pakistan from 1999 till 2003. I have been arrested in Iran, jailed and detained, and then I was sent back forcibly to Afghan border. From there, I organized the journey with the smugglers. First journey was to enter in Turkey by smugglers, a very tough journey. So unfortunately, when there is no legal and safe way for refugees, people fleeing war, the only way to arrive in safe countries, in this case in Europe, is to entrust your life in the hands of smugglers. People that they don't care about your life, they don't care about your dignity, 
just they think about money. I paid 4,000 euros to a smuggler to do a life-threatening journey between Greece and Turkey. We were on the boat, three days of journey on the boat when uh, the, the engine was broken, so water was coming inside. It was somehow an experience that you see with your eyes the death in front of you, that you are going to touch it. When I arrived in Greece after that journey, when I was in front of the mirror, I couldn't recognize myself as a person. When you arrive in Europe, when you touch the soil of Europe, you think that uh, you arrived in a place that uh, your rights are granted as a refugee, that you can seek refuge, you can become part of normal uh, citizen member of society. But in Greece, the things were quite uh, different. We were the, again in the hands of these smugglers and then we had to survive. There was no possibility to ask asylum. After many attempts to hide ourselves inside the harbor, under the truck, inside the truck, to get embarked on the, on the ship to arrive in Italy, finally one day we were with the smuggler and the smuggler said, look, go try there to hide yourself. Before embarkation, there were like controls, checkings. Other people had it on the backside of the truck. They found them and uh, sent them back. But they didn't realize that someone was also there. And in the morning, it disembarked. For three hours and a half, I was under the truck, close to the engine. The heat was very high. So I came in Rome. There is a big station. It was a gathering point for any Afghan refugees. I stayed for like three months again on the streets, sleeping in, in the station. And finally then I managed to ask asylum and then I got a place in a reception center. And then I started to learn Italian language and then I started to go to high school. And in the morning I was working and then in the evening I was going to high school. I studied in Roman University La Sapienza, political science and international relation. And then in 2019, we established our organization, UNIRE. I think there is a big gap of somehow listening to the voices of people with lived experience. In fact, this is the issue when we speak about policies or procedures. They are somehow designed and developed without listening to our voices, to us. Sometimes. Integration means that you should become like them, so you should somehow imitate yourself with what a society is like. But this is not, I think, the case for inclusion. And this is a pity because as refugees, through our communities, through our informal groups, uh, through our networks, associations, we want to contribute in the society. But when you have like newcomers, that they have new visions, new perspectives, new views, new kind of suggestion that they can give, that's completely changed and this brings positive change. And this is, I think, inclusion. And also we are very used on daily basis to speak about economic integration, social integration, cultural integration, but we never speak about socio-political integration, inclusion of newcomers. Because newcomers, migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, somehow they compose 
the population of the whole society, you know. So this is, I think, the main thing that we need to start to think of giving the opportunities to newcomers to participate in political life of whole society. Let us be honest, as our other many refugee friends say, that we cannot be refugee and foreigner forever. So, yeah, we are part of the society. We feel at home. We'll be right back. We've just heard from Syed Hasnan, former migrant and current refugee activist, who shared their personal story of their harrowing journey to reach safety. I had the pleasure of meeting and working with Syed some years ago on our efforts to prevent the disappearance and trafficking of migrant children. Now, let's jump into my interview with Razan, another powerful advocate for the rights of Muslim women refugees in Europe. Razan Ismail is Chief Operating Officer of New Women Connectors and the founder of the Association Kudwa. She's also a policy expert on gender equality and migration and part of the EU Commission Migration Expert Group. Hi, Razan. Thank you so much for joining us on Europe Talks Back. Thank you so much for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and also how you found your way to working at New Women Connectors? Well, I'm originally Syrian. I say always originally because uh, I am Syrian fully. I obviously, you know, grew up there and studied there. But then I spent years in England. I studied there. I worked there for a long time. And then I came to Spain. And then I also worked here for around six years now. So that's why I always say originally. But I am Syrian and Spanish and, 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 etc. How I found myself working at New Connectors is a very funny question, I think, because it's exactly that. Like I found myself working at New Women Connectors. It wasn't like a job that I applied for. I worked in several things. I worked in sales, obviously things that are not related to my field of study, obviously, as a migrant. This is like the classic. So I had an idea to help my fellow migrant women. And I was looking for a place where I can develop this idea And obviously, I got in touch with so many different people, so many different organizations that working with migrants. And in fact, no one was interested for some reason. And Anila, who's the founder of New Women Connectors, she was the only one who was like, yeah, sure, of course, let's just do this. So I ended up creating my own organization here in Spain. It's called Qudwa, in Arabic means role model. But then at the same time, working with New Women Connectors and I think it was really nice because we're not working in competition with each other. We're working in collaboration with each other. So to me, it was a very inclusive, I think, feminist approach to working together. I found it very interesting the way you talked about your Syrian identity. As someone who is also sort of an Indian, <laughs> I feel like every time someone asks me, where are you from? I hesitate, despite the fact that probably hundreds of people ask me that. And I'm always like, well, which part of my identity do they want to hear about? Do they just want to put me in the Indian box? Or am I allowed to be more than just that? Well, I'd love to hear a little bit more, first of all, about your organization in Spain and what the purpose is, 
what was the main burning thing that you thought, oh, this is something I want to be doing personally? And also you talked a little bit about a feminist approach. And I feel like these terms are thrown out all the time. And I kind of want to hear what it means to you personally, a feminist approach. A feminist approach is inherently all-inclusive. And it's the yes of it all. It's the yes to the potential, not to the merit that you've accumulated till now. And I also relate to that as a migrant because that yes, it changed my whole career. So I worked in like sales because that was the only job I was fit for. I studied pharmacy back home. I have a master's in health services management, but I was only hired because I spoke Arabic, regardless of what I studied before. That's okay. Grateful. All good. Awesome. But I never had the chance to really explore my potential and what I really want to do. And tell us a little bit about your organization. My organization is Morphling, I guess. It's a community, basically, and we're trying to create role models out of anyone. And we're trying also to adopt the feminist approach of including everyone. So we focus on creating spaces, on building the community. So anyone is welcome. And another thing that you said is grateful. And this is another like little pet peeve of mine, because I think it's another rhetoric that's pushed on migrants all the time. Be grateful. Don't question it. Don't say you don't like this or that. Don't talk about racism. Be a good migrant. Be grateful. I wondered, what is your biggest frustration in terms of making sure that people with a migration background or that people on the move have access to justice? What is something, a challenge you keep running into in terms of just making sure that all of us, including people migrating from the global south, have equal opportunity to thrive. You share a lot of my own frustrations as well. And and I think what you can hear from what you say is, is the schizophrenia that the EU has. You know, they have a schizophrenia between deterrence and then being the white savior, being inclusive. And they adopt this deterrence stance all the way until they realize that they can't get rid of you. And then they'll be like, oh, well, since you're here, then let's start talking about inclusion and integration. And we're met with so much hostility and we have to fight so much until the moment they realize, okay, we can't send them back, even though we want to. Okay, then don't let us sense your presence. So I think this is like my biggest frustration of how do you not realize this schizophrenia that you're in? Or also the idea of there are so many extremes. They either see you as a hero or they see you as a victim. You have to be either or. They either see you as completely reliant or an entrepreneur who's like completely self-reliant and there's nothing in between. And this binary is very, very dangerous because it drives extreme ideas about migration. You're either with or against. Absolutely. And I love the way you described it. Again, I would call it double standards, but it's the same. When it's inconvenient for them, they want it or they'll do it or because they have to. Otherwise, no. So related to that, what is something that you think a lot of people completely misunderstand when it comes to the topic of migration? Once I heard someone say she's a friend of mine and I love her for it. And she said that migration is a political issue. It's not a security issue. And I absolutely loved it. Because it is so true. It is. It keeps popping up as a security issue, and it really isn't. Frustratingly, I don't think we can only blame politicians. Right now, 
even with the far right on the rise, they're politicians. I think they say what people want to hear. And we have to take responsibility for that. I think we live in echo chambers and we only are with people who agree with us. So we think that they're the majority, but they're not. So I really think we need to really take a look at that. They do feed the fear of scarcity. It's a zero-sum game, and we need to tackle that. It's not about the good migrant or the bad migrant. It's about there's a space for everyone. And we need to address the competition, scarcity and the competition and the fear of those things. One more thing, that migration issues can be resolved on a European level. They can't. I work with many municipalities, and I think migration and integration issues can be addressed or should be addressed on a local level, can be resolved on a European level, because the local level is the closest that people get together, and it's a people issue. I think that these things are really important to discuss before we jump into like the integration thing, because again, everything is so linked. But what I would like to know is, what do you think integration means for you personally, to me, is the sense of belonging, is the sense that you belong to somewhere, to a group of people. I don't think we belong to places, honestly. I think we belong to groups of people, to communities. In Kudwa, we work with this concept of entami. It's called I belong. That's exactly what it means. And because we are kind of disconnected from our countries of origin, I'm sure that you understand, we can't go back. We don't belong there anymore, but we still don't quite belong here either. And I always say that we're floating like a flock of birds, but the flock of birds fly together to protect each other. So we belong to each other, to one another. So this is to me, being able to have that, having that safe space, being equal in value to everyone else around you. And the ownership part is extremely important because we're always treated as guests, as invited to things, to services even. To rights even, like you're invited to have this right if you comply with one, two, three. And we're not even hosts of either our own bodies, our spaces. We don't know if we're going to stay here or not. We don't know if we're going to. So it's very important. It's when the system, the society stops labeling you as a migrant through policies, through restrictions to access to healthcare or to education or whatever. And you choose to have that as your identity or not. And I'm always asked the question of like, when does one stop being a migrant? The moment they can choose to be a migrant or not is when they actually stop, when they have the freedom and the right to choose. So what do you think both Europeans, European governments and local governments, what expectations do you think they have when you talk about an integrated migrant, what are they expecting? The expectations are impossible. You need to speak the language without an accent immediately. You need to speak it immediately. Then you have to always work, but then only in jobs that they have shortages in that no one else wants. But then you need to earn enough money to rent in decent neighborhoods so there are not no ghettos. Then you need to look white enough and you need to remove your hijab, for example, or any, but then also ethnic enough so that you can be tokenized when they need you or the token like ethnic employee. And then you need to forget about your identity until there's a cultural event. And then you need to show off your, you need to teach them about your culture. 
and it needs to always be fun and there needs to be new food to try. You know, you need to always be self-reliant, tax-paying, law-abiding, keeping your head down. You need to be grateful of like, oh, thank you for giving me this right. Amazing. And then add to that being a woman, add to that being LGBTI, add to that being disabled. I think it's the impossible equation. So we've been talking about what integration means to us. We've been talking about what we think governments or the average person in Europe thinks when they hear integration. But what I really want to also dig deeper into is what is the cost of integrating for people like us or for migrants who are in much less privileged positions? I think the cost is high for both parties. We call them the host communities, inaptly, I guess. But it's mainly the loss of cultural identity, obviously, but also not to mention the mental health impact that has on one's identity. And I'm completely convinced that this causes more and more isolation. It causes more and more exclusion because if we don't comply with the expectations, then we feel excluded, unwelcome. Exclusion leads often to uh, ghettoism, for example, and isolation breeds fear by both communities, by the migrant community, but also the the local community. This puts a massive burden on the migrant. I think also we're missing the benefits of diversity, of being challenged, of growth. Instead of having to travel the world, having the world come to us and learning from that. So, I mean, just to wrap up, is there anything final that you want to say, especially in terms of what you think needs to change? The center needs to be social cohesion, needs to be community building. It needs to be facing the future as a community, as a whole, as one. And we need to also focus, I think, from convincing the leaders or talking to experts to talking to citizens and really understanding what is going on there. Because I think citizens are key. And if we can find a way to bring them together and convince them that everybody's equal in value and everybody has something to offer the community then we can face the future together. I love that. And since I have the privilege of speaking on the podcast, I'll throw in some of my final thoughts as well. One is migration. Migration is only going to increase. So there is going to be more migration. We all need to understand the impact that we are having, especially as people living in the North with privileged lifestyles. And I think hopefully that way we can start to understand that When we talk about solidarity, it's truly because our actions affect others and therefore other people's actions affect us. Thank you so much, Razan. I absolutely enjoyed having this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Dear listeners, I hope through this episode, you've picked up at least two things. First, Just like you, every human being, whether they have migrated or not, wants to belong to a community that loves, accepts, and supports us. We deserve that just as much as anyone else. Second, both of the people who shared their experiences had to face hostile circumstances in Europe, a continent where political leaders on both sides of the coin often claim to be championing human rights. And yet, that did not deter them not only from creating a community for themselves, 
but also making sure that there was a welcoming space and belonging for others. And if that isn't an inspiring and powerful message, I don't know what is. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Europe Talks Back, a podcast that uncovers impactful stories from across the continent. This show is part of the Sfera Network project, and it is available on Europod, a network of podcasts exploring European cultures, politics, and societies. The producer of Europe Talks Back is Claudia Torisi. The executive producer is Alexander Damiano Ricci. Sound design and mixing I by Jeremy Bouquet. Original soundtrack is by Thomas Kusberg. Hosting and narration is done by me, Gail Rago. We'll be back in two weeks with an episode about protests. In the current climate, where South Africa, backed by over 50 countries, mostly from the global south, have accused Israel of genocide against Palestinians at the UN's highest court, and growing awareness of lesser-known genocides happening in Ethiopia and Sudan, I want to ask grassroots organizers, are protests really effective? What are the real impacts of protesting? Then what are some challenges or limitations? Stay tuned. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.